What is it that wearies you? I think there are a few things more exciting than the first day of school. I uh, guess there are several in here that may not agree with me on that estimate, but I'd like you to at least uh, give uh, some consideration uh, to my case in point. Think of the exhilaration that comes with seeing old friends after not being able to see them for a whole summer, perhaps a summer plus, in light of uh, the events that we've seen here in 2020. Uh, think of the prospect of having to t- being able to take new classes. Perhaps you finally entered into that next level, that next grade. We're finally able to take the classes that you've wanted rather than simply the general education requirements. If you play in a, on a sports team, go sports, right? There's always that hope uh, that you will finally be picked as the starting lineup on the team rather than sitting second or third bench. If anything, the start of a new year uh, gives the prospect of a fresh start. A new beginning. Of course, three quarters of the way into that year or to that sports season, uh, those times do not seem as refreshing, though, does it? I think of the grueling hours of practice that are required if you play football. Think of the long nights of homework if you're a chemistry major. It's easy to see all the failures uh, that you have accumulated over the course of that year as you get report card after report card, as your parents receive the phone calls from your teachers saying, little Billy should be doing better than he has. It's easy to suffer from tunnel vision to such a point that you do not know how to get out of the rut. You're tired and you're exhausted and you just want it all to end. I think uh, for many of us this sounds quite similar uh, to the Christian life at times, doesn't it? It's one thing to start the marathon, and yet as the book of Hebrews continues to press upon our hearts, it is another thing to finish the race and to finish it well. How is it that you endure through the long haul? How do you keep running with a sprained ankle? I think I would make a terrible football coach, or any coach for that matter, uh, you know, if your team's losing, my only advice would be score more points, run faster, try harder, do better. Not really helpful uh, things. You know, thank you, Coach Obvious. Perhaps we need something a little bit more specific in how we are to continue fighting well. Well, just as a good coach provides specific directives, even in the midst of weariness, so too uh, does the author of Hebrews provide correctives and directives uh, for the church as we run the race set before us, as chapter 12, verse 1 begins and talks about the whole issue of paideia, right? That whole issue of instruction and discipline that we talked about a few weeks ago, running the race that is set before us as believers run the race to the celestial city as we're learning about in our adult Sunday school class with Ben uh, Thoker and Pilgrim's Progress. Here the language uh, you see here in verses uh, 12 and 13 uses the language, continues using the sports metaphor. It's calling for the boxer to lift the drooping hands, the runner to strengthen the weak knees, to seek healing for the sockets, which would have been knocked out of joint. So the question we have before us this morning, I think, is how do we do that? How is it that we catch our second wind as pilgrims who are weary making our way to Zion? How do we endure without tossing in the towel? Although our passage this morning, I think, provides three specific directives in the discipline of grace 
First regards matters of conflict, we'll see in verse 14. The second regards matters of bitterness, we see in verse 15. And finally, uh, the final directive concerns matters of sexual immorality and our own debased appetites and the antidotes to them as we run the race set before us with joy. Well, the first directive regards that of conflict. I think six months into this lockdown, I think we're all suffering from a certain case of cabin fever. I don't think anybody would deny that. Everybody has short fuses and long toes. It's easy to get offended quickly, to get offended easily. It's easy for each of us, myself included, to lose our cool, even to go off on those who are closest to us, to those who we love even the most dearly. I think even in the midst of uh, debate and strife, even when we are right, I think there's a way in which we can dig in our heels that does not promote peace. I think what's so fascinating about this passage is that what we see before us is the passage associates peace with holiness. Notice that. Strive for peace and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I think many of us associate holiness with being persnickety, As if the greater the curmudgeon, the holier thou art indeed. But scripture places a different emphasis on holiness here. Yes, there is the focus on moral purity. But it is a moral purity that promotes godliness and seeks peace with all men, if at all possible. Remember the words of our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. That those who have been adopted into God's family are, in fact, called what? Peacemakers. They are the ones who are called the sons of God. It's a distinguishing feature of the beloved. It's a characteristic mark of the church to be a peacemaker. I think it's a sober reminder uh, for us, even within our own uh, communion, I think. Uh, for better or for worse, the Reformed churches are known um, Stereotype, at least, for being people who pride themselves in being right all the time. To the point, perhaps even of divisiveness. I think this is perhaps a real danger. I get it, there is certainly a time and a place to stand your ground. That is for sure. But I think there can be the tendency. I know the tendency, and I'm saying this, uh, preaching this first and foremost to myself, is that we could become so trigger happy at cutting others down we become so trigger-happy that we begin cutting others down in the name of truth. When we do that, I think we fail to appreciate that the footwear of the soldier of the cross, according to the Apostle Paul, is the gospel of peace. Again, there is certainly a time to stand up for the truth. I'm not advocating a peace at all costs like Neville Chamberlain had in the Second World War. Rather, I am advocating that we pursue, as far as it depends upon us, avenues that lead to mutual upbuilding. That's how Paul describes it in Romans 14. To seek prospects that benefit both parties, if at all possible. See, the path to holiness consists in peacemaking. And apart from holiness, this passage says no one will see the Lord. To fail to walk the highway of holiness, that path to the heavenly Zion, is to fail, as verse 16 says, to obtain the grace of God. What it's not saying here is that you somehow earn God's grace, that you merit God's favor. 
Rather, it's simply saying this, that those who are justified by God's grace are also the same people who are sanctified by God's grace. When we speak of the benefits of being united to our Savior, it is a package deal. Those whom God justifies, those whom he also sanctifies. Those whom he also preserves and perseveres, and those whom he also will glorify. And the author of Hebrews is making a very simple comment. Very simple observation. If you're not walking the highway of holiness, if you have no desire to do that, how can you ever rest assured that you are in fact justified? Perhaps you are indeed um, hiding behind the stubbornness of your own heart, thinking, I'm part of the church, I've been baptized, I have prayed the sinner's prayer, Uh, my name is on the membership roll, my church every Sunday, therefore I can continue to uh, dwell in my own sin without any desire or need to grow in repentance. Well, we must realize that Christ is, if Christ has pardoned you of your sins, he will also work in you to cleanse you of your sins and make you holy. You cannot have one without the other. These benefits are distinct, but those benefits are also inseparable. But those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ will seek reconciliation with others as well. Remember our Savior's own uh, parable uh, with the unmerciful servant. That servant who was pardoned of the great debt that he owed his master, and yet uh, he refuses to pardon uh, those under him who are begging for the same type of mercy. Those who have truly been pardoned will seek to show that same pardon in an analogous way to those who have wronged us. Purity consists in peacemaking. And as our Savior said, it is only the pure in heart that shall see God. And that is, that is our goal, isn't it? The sight of our Savior at the gates of Zion. There should be nothing else that stands in our way. We should not let anything else trip us up in the obstacle of the race that is set before us. To see our Savior face to face. What is our chief end? It's the enjoyment of God and to glorify him forever. The hopes that we will actually see Christ one day. Though we do not yet see him, we still love him, as Peter writes. This leads to a second directive, and it regards the matter of bitterness, something that, is, that overlaps with this first directive, the pursuit of peace. Here, the author speaks of this root of bitterness. And this language here harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, where Moses warned the church under the old covenant not to have their hearts led astray by idols, to think that they were safe simply because they had been circumcised. Hear what what Moses says. This is Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 to 20. You can jot it down in your notes and uh, double-check me later, but I'll just read uh, this. This is Moses speaking. He says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe. 
though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. In other words, as the author of Hebrews is speaking of the bitter root, he is appropriating that language of Deuteronomy, showing that perhaps the bitterness that we struggle against exposes the idolatries of our very hearts. What is it that makes you bitter? Do you look back on your life and chafe at the fact that you were not as successful as you hoped to be? That your ministry is not as large or successful as you had dreamed? That that special person did not cater to your every desire as you had longed for? These are just a couple examples of the very ways in which bitterness comes to define our very lives. And yet this exposes the things that anger us, those very things that we did not get what we wanted. Perhaps, however, it also tells us those very things that we treasure more than the Lord himself. Why do conflicts arise, James writes? Perhaps we can add as well, why all the bitterness? Why does bitterness arise? Does it not expose the unsatisfied lusts of our own idolatrous hearts? So the author of Hebrews warns to uproot bitterness before it defiles you and everyone around you. Again, using that language of Deuteronomy 29, the root of bitterness will begin to spread and defile. The Lord will come and will have to sweep away the moist and the dry alike. Bitterness festers and spreads like a cancer. It's one of those sins that can so easily entangle one of us And as it trips up one of us, it can come to trip up all of us. Think of a potato sack race. One person in the potato sack race falls, the person who he's connected and tethered to trips and falls as well. That's the imagery we have here before us. One of the specific directives we have, how do we get back on course? Find where it is, those things that are making you bitter. And ask yourselves why. And then deal with the idols that that fester underneath that wound. One final directive is a directive that concerns our very appetites. As it says here in verses 16 to 17, to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Here we have an example that's given before us of a famous Old Testament figure, uh, the classic don't be like this guy test case. It's not the thing that you want to happen, have happen if you want your name put in the Bible. Uh, you know, we have, we have the, the hall of faith of Hebrews 11, but then we also have the hall of unbelief scattered throughout as well. And Esau is the negative example. But I don't think many of us would associate Esau with sexual immorality. It's quite interesting, isn't it? To see to it that no one is sexually immoral like Esau. But that's exactly what we see Hebrews doing. We have to remember the broader context for the life of Esau. When you look at Genesis chapter 26, what is it that Esau is said to have done? He married outside the covenant. He pursued foreign women. The whole point of that passage in Genesis is not simply that, that Esau is marrying outside of his clan or tribe as, as, as if it's you know, promoting some type of ethnocentrism. 
Rather, the whole point is that he is marrying pagan women. Women who worship other gods. And it says that Esau, in doing so, makes his, made life miserable for his parents. For Isaac and Rebekah. Look how easily his heart was turned away. We don't have to stop with Esau. We can continue looking at other examples. Remember last year in the evenings when we worked our way through uh, the life of Solomon in 1 Kings. Here is the man who looks just like Adam. And here is a man who, like Adam, has his heart turned away by his own wife or wives. Here is a man who loved the Lord and was steadfast early on. And yet, because he married outside of the covenant of grace... His own wives turned his heart away from the Lord, where Solomon turns from the faith. It's a very sober warning. How easy it is to have somebody turn our affections away from the living God. Perhaps you remember how exciting it was the first time you met your future spouse. Perhaps it wasn't exciting the first time you met your future spouse, but they persisted anyway. But at least remember or consider the time when the spark finally ignited, where there were the butterflies, when there was the euphoria. How easy it would be in the throes of infatuation to cast all caution to the wind. How easy would it be if that person were not a believer to draw your affections away from the living God? For you to rationalize, compromise. Look at that broader context we see here in Hebrews. Consider how this portion of Scripture is addressing the weary Christian. Again, it's within that broader paragraph of of, of the weak hands, the, the, the nimble knees. How easy would it be for someone who is so tired of fighting the fight alone? Perhaps battling loneliness, seeking to find that special someone who would give them just enough attention that when they finally do find that person in the classroom or in the office or at a restaurant, that they think, well, maybe if I just compromise a little bit, it won't be such a big deal. How easy would it be to justify missionary dating when the hormones are raging? I think this should be a lesson to all youth, to all singles, right? If you want to get married, that's great. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You're free to do so, Paul says, but with only one stipulation, only in the Lord, only if they are a believer. So you have to be careful, you have to watch your step, or else it'll it'll throw your life off course. Esau failed here, he pursued Canaanite women, but it exposes an even deeper problem with Esau. You see, Esau also sold his birthright for a single meal. It's something that the author of Hebrews brings up as well. And we have to ask, what does Esau's sexual proclivities have to do with a cup of venison stew? The two don't seem to, to operate together, do they? Well, I think the solution is simple. Here's a man who is governed by his appetites, be it sex or soup. Here's a man who found both of these of greater value than his birthright. Here's a man who threw it all away for a moment's pleasure. So what desires govern your life's course of action? Is your life defined by the pursuit of pleasure or by the pursuit of peace and holiness? 
that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's the litmus litmus test for the race that we are called to run. As Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is outside the body, but this one is unique in its consequences. Not saying that it's unforgivable, but it's harder to break free from. So to return to the earlier question that I posed at the beginning, what is it that wearies you? So we consider these various patterns of behavior that we are all confronted with, be it conflict with others, bitterness that arises from our own hearts, or even the pursuit of pleasure and those appetites that govern our own course of action. Could it be that those very things that dominate your life, those very things that you are pursuing, the desire to get our own way, even at the expense of peace, the fostering and festering of bitterness because life has not given us the very things that we had craved the seeking of pleasure over purity? Could it just be that these are the very things that are wearying the people of God? The very things that are entangling us in the race that is set before us, as chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 have warned against. As we seek to satisfy our own lusts, it's much like a man who is lost at sea and he's thirsty. He begins to drink the salt water from the ocean, not recognizing that it's the saltiness of the ocean water that's making him even more and more thirsty. Perhaps the sources that we have sought for comfort are the very waters that have parched our throats all the more. But there is another source that promises true rest and refreshment for weary hearts. There is one who has promised to fill those empty voids. There is one who will cause the weary runner, as Isaiah says, to mount up and soar on eagles' wings. That one is our precious Savior. Christ, who is better than all you can ever hope or imagine. What is it that you want that you do not already have in Christ? Do you suffer from a gnawing sense of guilt? Find refreshment in the forgiveness of sins. Do you ache from loneliness? Well, in Christ, there's reconciliation to be found with God. God who is the friend of sinners. The one who through Christ has adopted us and received us into his own. Do you feel dirty from years of sin, even dark, gross sin? No matter how deep or heinous your sins are, we find that in Christ there is not only freedom from that sin, but also cleansing, also the removal of shame. In Christ, as we often sing, is found the fount of every blessing. He is the balm for troubled hearts. He is the rest for weary souls. As our Savior says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, And I will give you rest. See, there's nothing lasting that this world has to offer. That's why we as the church are known as pilgrims. Because we don't, we're not traveling for the oasis in the desert. We're seeking that heavenly city that has a river flowing of everlasting life. Streams who make glad the city of God. Psalm 46 tells us, 
As we walk that highway of holiness seeking the heavenly city, that city has that has that more and solid foundation, that city that has a Savior, one who has promised that for all who endure will see him on that last day face to face. And if you have not joined the ranks of the beloved, if you have not joined the church and, can, and profess faith in Christ, I, could sit, I, you know, I ask that you consider doing so. As we all join and run that race that is set before us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the refreshing streams that are found in your word. We ask that we would find uh, the benefits that are found in our Savior to be of greater value, even appropriated by faith and though yet unseen, to be of more lasting pleasure than the passing pleasures of all that this world has to offer. Uh, We do ask that your word and your spirit would uh, seek uh, to uh, comfort weary hearts. And for those who have sprained ankles and those who are weary, we ask that you would provide healing as we seek to run the race before us with joy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.